Hi, I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. Voices is the most stimulating gathering of fashion industry leaders on the planet. What makes Voices different is that we mix our industry with fascinating people from other sectors, from the worlds of economics, activism, health and wellness, medicine, film, philanthropy, technology, media, and so many more. Fashion doesn't live in a bubble, and nor should it. This is one of the sessions from our 2017 gathering. Today on the BOF podcast, we're going to think about the state of the global economy. It's a really interesting time for the economy. Ever since the financial crisis of 2008, uh, there's been a recovery and the economy has continued to grow and expand pretty consistently. Now we're at a point where all of, most all of the major economies in the world are growing together. However, all of that's happening with a backdrop of serious geopolitical uncertainty with Brexit, with Trump, with the North Korean nuclear crisis, with uncertainty in the Middle East. So we asked three people, Jonathan Ferguson, John G. Tree, and Rohan Silva to chat with our Chief Commercial Officer, Nick Blunden, on the state of the global economy at Voices 2017. So we invited three people to sit down with us at Voices 2017 to talk about the state of the global economy. John Ferguson, John Dreetree, and Rohan Silva sat down with our Chief Commercial Officer, Nick Blunden, to go inside the state of the global economy and understand this interesting and inherent contradiction of a rising economy with the backdrop of geopolitical uncertainty. Just a quick note, this conversation was recorded live in front of an audience So please excuse any audio issues. The state of the global economy, which is currently experiencing a synchronized global expansion in major industrialized economies around the world. Almost all the G20 economies are expanding together, and this is unlike anything we've seen in the last decade. However, alongside that, as has come up several times this morning, There are ongoing geopolitical tensions around the world. Here in the UK, we have Brexit. There are ongoing wars in the Middle East, the threat of nuclear crises in North Korea and Iran, and of course, the populist policies of Donald Trump, which have also contributed to a state of uncertainty in the the global uh, context. So how do we reconcile these things? Why is the economy continuing to grow like it is? The stock markets are at record highs. How long can this economic expansion last before a market correction is to happen? And how should we be prepared? To lead this conversation, I am pleased to welcome BOF's Chief Commercial Officer, Nick Blunden, as well as John Ferguson of Bloomberg, John Dietrich of Quartz, and we also welcome back the ever-eloquent Rohan Silva to educate us on the state of the global economy. Well, hello, everybody. It's such a pleasure to be back on the Voices stage to talk about the state of the global economy. Um, And as Imran said, we have good news for you. The good news, of course, since we were here uh, a year ago, the global economy has done incredibly well. Uh, We weren't sure about that when we talked a year ago, but it's been a good year for the global economy. The bad news, and there's always bad news to go with the good news, is that the level of geopolitical risk um, has grown exponentially. From North Korea, to Brexit, there's a lot of things out there that could potentially upset 
um, the growth that we're seeing. So I'm absolutely delighted to have such a wonderful panel here that includes an economist, a journalist, um, and an entrepreneur who has experience of government, unusual, so thank you for that, um, to, uh, to talk to us about this apparent contradiction that we're seeing. As Imran talked about, this positive growth that we see, but this extraordinary risk that's out there. So that's the background for this discussion. Um, John Ferguson, uh, yes. from the Economist Intelligence Unit, yes. um, our economist on stage, I'd like to start with you, uh, and I'd like to focus in on global growth first. So we're in a period, enjoying a period, I might say, that some economists are calling synchronized global expansion. Now, that doesn't happen very often, and that's where the major, major industrialized economies around the world are all growing simultaneously. It's quite a rare phenomenon. Um, and the IMF, off the back of that, which does its um, regular global forecast, is predicting that we will see global growth output of about 3.8% next year, which is not bad. It's pretty good. But of course, as we talked about, there's a lot of risk out there. So I know that the Economist Intelligence Unit does its own independent growth forecast. Are you as optimistic about the IMF, about global growth? And if you are, how do you square that away with all this risk that could potentially upset the apple cart? Excellent question, and thank you for the invite. It's great to be here. I had a great night last night and met some wonderful people. So, no, we're not. We're not as optimistic as the IMF about global growth, and part of that reason is sort of the, the risk that we see around the world. The IMF is a great institution. Um, we know them very well. They've got great economists. Um, but we, we diff the, the main difference we have on the economic side of things is China. Uh, they think China will continue carrying on at the same sort of rate. For many of you might know this, but China has a massive, massive debt problem, and you know we think they have to address that very, very soon, or the Chinese economy will crash. Because they're going to be addressing it in the way we think they will, Chinese growth will slow down um, pretty significantly next year. So in terms of the global economy, that is a major story for us. Um, so we're not as optimistic as the IMF. But as you mentioned, we've, we're living through an extraordinary time. Um, I've been with The Economist for seven years, and I love the company. Um, but I have a colleague who's much older than me, who's been around for many years, and he's been covering risk, uh, geopolitical, political risk, for, 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 for decades, it seems like. And he told me recently that in his experience, he's never known a period of greater risk in the global economy. Um, so this is, this, is, this is the biggest story we're focusing on. I mean, I could talk about GDP, inflation, exchange rates all day, but right now, it's the things you mentioned. It's North Korea, uh, it's Iran, uh, it's Mr. Trump and his Twitter feed, uh, it's Brexit. This is everywhere, and this is the big story that we're focusing on right now. Great stuff. And Rohan, as an entrepreneur, how do you feel? Are you optimistic about the way the economy's going, or do you look at those risks and say, we need to be, when we're thinking about growing businesses, working with the clients who are at second home, we need to be thinking about that risk? Yeah, it's interesting. I, mean, I used to be a Treasury civil servant, and there's a sort of uh, technical economic term uh, that comes to mind when I think of macroeconomic forecast, which is um, bollocks. Because, <laughs> you know, as, as the physicist Niels Bohr put it, prediction is often difficult, especially about the future, right? <laughs> and, um, but, you know, I think what to me is fascinating about the here and now, uh, the, these trends of globalization and technology that are causing so much upheaval, causing a lot of unpredictability, are also provide, creating immense opportunities. And what's interesting about the perspective you know, we have at Second Home is that uh, we have almost every industry uh, based at Second Home. We've got fashion companies like Xenia and Threads and Heavenly, but they're alongside you know, big corporations like Ernst & Young and startups like Kickstarter. And 
across the board, West Inc's a huge amount of job creation, investment, uh, and optimism. And I think, paradoxically, it's because of this uncertainty that these innovators are flourishing. And that, I think, is a really lovely um, sentiment, I, I think, that you know, when, the, when the world is, uh, is uh, some parts of the world are bearish uh, and feeling the risk, there's huge opportunity there that the innovators are, are grasping. And I see that every day. So in some respects, there's never been a better time to do yeah. stuff that has risk because there's risk everywhere. Well, and a good, a good example of that is if you look at uh, venture capital investment in technology. So Brexit clearly has caused a lot of uncertainty. And yet, if you look at uh, technology investment in the UK this year, $5.5 billion invested in the UK in, 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 uh, by venture capital funds. That's three times more than Germany uh, this year into the UK. And the UK is sort of pulling away from other European countries in spite of you know, more macroeconomic uncertainty perhaps than ever. And I think that's because where there's uncertainty, old industries get disrupted, uh, get overturned. There's the space then for newcomers to step into the void. And you know, I'm of the mindset that sees excitement uh, and optimism in that, and maybe borne out in a year's time in the, in the economic data. Um, but uh, as I say, I'm pretty skeptical about forecasts in general. Great. John, did you Ryan mentioned Brexit? I remember we were here a year ago and we talked a bit about Brexit and we were concerned and there were, we had a different panel, but a lot of discussion about Brexit and the potential negative consequences of that. We're a year further forward. Um, remarkably, although negotiations have started, not a lot seems to have happened either with those negotiations um, or with the economic impact. Uh, the UK economy, I think, is still growing. Um, there's been some fluctuations um, in, in the pound. Europe's doing okay. Is that because actually all those worries about Brexit, and you've written a lot about this, um, were kind of unfounded? Or are we just still sleepwalking towards the Brexit cliff uh, where there is no deal? And what consequences would that have? That's, I mean, that's a great question. I'd be curious to hear um, you know, what my colleagues on the panel think as well. You know, to your point earlier about synchronized global growth, um, there are signs that the UK economy is, isn't growing as quickly as other major economies in Europe. Um, there are signs that that toll is there, but we haven't seen you know, a cliff edge. There wasn't a vote and then a collapse in the economy. Um, you know, the UK is still part of the EU. Um, these things do take time. You know, the, the, I feel like I could say this about pretty much everything I, I deal with, whether I'm talking about financial technology or anything like that. You know, people tend to overestimate in the short term and underestimate in the long run, and that's probably some of what we're seeing here. Um, and in terms of the negotiations, you know, I, I was at a dinner last night with some finance executives, and they were saying, you know, it looks optimistic right now. You know, you're kind of hearing the right things. You're hearing things about, um, you know, maybe a deal coming through. There's a lot of skepticism there. You do see, um, you, you do still see banks and, and big financial institutions making plans to, you know, you know, work overseas where necessary. And I feel like that's easily overstated because this is a hedge. That doesn't mean they're, you know, Goldman Sachs is going to move 50% of its bankers. This is an early, early phase just to make sure that they're short up, depending on what happens. And I feel like the media headlines tend to get this wrong. Maybe I've been guilty of that in the past, guilty of a lot of these things in the past. But I, I think that these can, this can be overstated, but there is a lot of potential and a lot, a lot yet to be seen in terms of the, the impact down the road. And yeah, there are some signs right now that it, it could be better than some of the worst fears, but a lot, everything depends on negotiations that are far from signed and complete. 
And John Ferguson, I, as you know, I used to work at The Economist. I remember back in, you know, several years ago, we sort of talked a little bit about, you know, what might happen if the UK decided to leave the European Union. But generally, the consensus is that's not going to happen, right? The, uh, yeah. And, and things have clearly moved on since then. How are you looking at this from the EIU perspective now? Yeah, absolutely. It's a mix of these things we've been talking about. Our central forecast, and when I talk to clients... Um, as director of global forecasting, which is a, you know, <laughs> I have to forecast this stuff. <laughs> um, but it's an excellent point. Like, we, we have to have evidence. We try to give our clients the evidence while we have certain forecasts. And, yeah, in, in terms of Brexit, our central forecast is that, you know, a deal will be done that moves the, com the country into a transition period. Um, but, you know, we've seen news every day from many, many places. There, there's a great risk that these, these negotiations fall apart. But it is, I think it's a recognition on both sides. I think, personally, the UK would suffer more economically uh, from a no deal, from a, from a hard Brexit, than the EU. But the EU would also suffer. It, it's, it's really in no-one's interest to not get something into this transition period. So that's our central view. But, you know, it's, it, it's, there's a lot of risk there. Great. Um, I want to move on and just talk about the US. It's impossible to talk about the state of the global economy without talking about the US. And when you talk about the US, it's impossible not to talk about Trump. Uh, so we're going to do that. Rohan, you, um, you know, as you said, you worked at the Treasury for a while. So I think you have a good view on the ability for politics to influence the economy. Mm. The US economy is doing very well. Yeah. Um, Trump, I think, is take, trying to take some credit for that. Um, but the, the administration hasn't really achieved a lot. And, of course, in the background to that is his stated policies about um, protectionism uh, and America first. What's your sense? Can the Trump administration take some credit for that? And is it sustainable? Or should we really be thinking that the consequences of a Trump administration are yet to really mm. be seen from an economic perspective? If you, look at, if you look at the numbers, it's clear that the American economy is doing very well. Uh, it's growing at over 3%. It's beating uh, the forecasts. Uh, it's, doing, it's doing very well. And the Dow Jones Industrial Index hit a record all-time high just this week. So something really is sort of going right. There's a lot of confidence in the American economy. And what this seems to be attributed to is something that I'm not sure Trump can entirely claim credit for, but is a, a set of tax changes that are being uh, driven through the system that the stock markets and investors are very excited about. And I've got to say, I think they're right to be excited. So the uh, American uh, corporation tax rate is 35%. And that's really, really high by international standards. The UK's is 20%. Uh, the average across developed economies is 25%. So America's is 35%. And they, uh, the American government has a pretty tough approach to uh, imposing it as well. If you pay 20% tax, in the UK as a corporation, uh, if you then take your profits back to America, you get taxed on the difference. Uh, so you get an extra 15% tax uh, taking your money to America. As a result of that, there's over $2.5 trillion uh, of American company profits being held offshore and not taken back to America. And so what this tax change is going to do, uh, people expect, is prompt American companies, the Googles and Apples and all the companies that Jonathan Taplin uh, wants to break up. It's going to encourage them to repatriate uh, those trillions of dollars back to America, which will be a massive fiscal stimulus for America. And there's an interesting consequence for countries like the UK. Uh, we've really benefited from American companies holding cash overseas they've kind of got to do something with it. And so they've been pretty ready to buy companies in Britain, to invest in the UK and places like that, because they can't get it back to America. 
So if you want to sell your company to Google or another US uh, company, uh, I'd probably try and move fast uh, before they get their money back to America. <laughs> um, John Dietrich, you, you've written a lot, lot about the stock market. And as Ryan mentioned, the stock market's on a bit of a tear. I think, if I'm right, that it's the second longest bull run in history for the US stock market. Now, of course, when you think about bull runs in the stock market, you immediately think that doesn't last forever. We must be heading for a crash. Um, it feels like we've only just started to come out of the last recession, but actually we're quite a long way into the recovery. So should we be expecting a stock market crash in the year ahead, or is something changed since the last crash that makes the stock market more robust, more durable, and which will enable this run to last? What's your view? Well, if there are several interesting things about this rally, and it makes me think of an Economist magazine cover I saw recently. It was the bull market and everything. You know, it's not just the stock market that has very high prices. It's also housing in many cases and lots of other assets as well. You've probably heard of Bitcoin, really high prices there as well. And, you know, part of what's driving this it is also a rally that in some cases, as was said earlier, you know, this is very much optimism about tax cuts and policy that could help it. But it's also a lot of central bank influence. You know, the central banks have been around the world. This is a global phenomenon. have been pouring, you know, petrol into this rally for a long time. And, um, and it's a rally that sometimes isn't entirely popular with investors. It, it isn't, you know, there are people who believe in it, but there are also people who are like, I, I'm buying into this because I have no other choice. They feel that the central banks have made all assets expensive and they have to participate or be left out by you know, other money managers, other investors. Um, and, and that's happened historically where there is a rally that, that investors don't believe in and that's, that's not always, um, it doesn't always result in a, a good ending. And you know, when you talk to people, they say, what's going to end this rally? And the most common thing that I hear is people say, when the Federal Reserve and other central bankers take their foot off the gas pedal, start removing the accommodation um, you know, that's been just unprecedented, that's what could end it. But I, it doesn't look like that's necessarily going to happen anytime soon. The new Fed Chair Powell's probably going to continue pretty close to the you know, very gentle uh, uh, policy uh, that's been in place. You know, it's being retracted, but very slowly. So you know, this has room to run, but it, the longer it runs, perhaps it has, also has more scope to be, to be uglier. So off the back of that, there was a lot of talk earlier on about um, Amazon. So just a quick question, but I'm running a bit off script here. But we may potentially see in 2018 the first trillion dollar company off the back of that stock market rally. Do you think that will be Amazon? I think, I mean, I'd be curious to hear what uh, my colleagues here think. Um, I think Amazon, just given the euphoria that's behind those types of stocks, is a pretty good candidate uh, for those kinds of hopes. Um, we're in you know, a, a period that, that we've seen in the past where I think there is um, a lot of hope and a lot of expectation that we're in kind of a new era where companies like, like Amazon and you know, artificial intelligence and everything else is transformative, and it probably is, but I think that, you know, I guess that's a long way of saying, yeah, I think that Amazon has the right story for investors to get pretty excited, drive the prices up pretty high. Rohan, off the back of the conversation you had earlier, you think Amazon, trillion dollar company? Oh, yeah, I think it'll take Jonathan um, a little longer to smash it up. But yeah, they, I mean, the underlying fundamentals, you know, Amazon Web Services valued at something like uh, 
uh, $50 billion. Um, you know, there's, there's a set of big businesses, Amazon Prime, Amazon Web Services, the advertising business, as well as the retail business, vastly, vastly valuable. So, yeah, I think they'll hit a trillion dollars next year. Yeah. Um, we're running out of time, but John Ferguson, I just wanted to come back and talk to you about one thing that I think historically has upset economies and global growth, and that's conflict. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was growing up 40-odd years ago, um, being quite concerned about the, you know, global con nuclear conflict. And then it seems that you know, we've had quite a lot of conflict um, since then, but, but there seems to be something different. Korea, the Korean Peninsula, North Korea seems to be something that potentially could really, um, uh, if you'll excuse the pun, blow up. Uh, what's your view about um, uh, what's happening on the Korean Peninsula? Are we heading towards some sort of conflict? And if we are, is that the thing that could undermine the economy? It is the thing that could undermine the global economy for sure. I mentioned China at the start. That's, in our view, that's the biggest sort of economic risk the global economy faces. But the Korean Peninsula is the biggest geopolitical risk. But I think we, our position is we don't expect a military conflict to occur. Um, there's a Trump tweet for everything. He said a few months ago that North Korea reaching sort of full nuclearization will never happen. Uh, and, but unfortunately for him and for maybe the rest of the world, they will. You know, th this, this regime has put their people through famine. So all, th all the set talk of sanctions, it, it will put pressure on the, on the economy in North Korea, but it will not stop their progress. We saw a test just recently, another, another missile. But it will not stop their progress towards reaching what we call full nu nuclearization, which is where they can hit, they can you know, confidently hit the, the, the mainland US and, and have the, the missile uh, survive re-entry. They're just about there. So, you know, Trump is going to be disappointed, um, but we don't think he will strike. And, and one of the reasons why we don't think he'll strike, at least in the near term, is, you know, the weapons in North Korea are, are, are completely spread out. You know, um, there is no way that there is one strike from the US that can end this and just everyone goes home happy. There will be retaliation from the North. So, you know, South Korea's there, Japan's really close. Um, the minimal conflict would be 100,000, if not a million people dead. You know, that, that, is, that is a serious, serious thing, and, and we think that's one of the reasons why there won't be support for a US strike. But it, absolutely, the risk is there, and um, even though we don't think Trump will do it, he's a little bit unpredictable. And John, the Quartz view on that, do you share that view that conflict is, is unlikely? It is. I mean, that seems to be the prevailing view, and um, certainly I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that that's, uh, you know, that that's the outcome. Um, you know, I, I guess one of the things that comes to mind is uh, you, you read cases where people, you know, sometimes give leaders like Trump or, uh, you know, maybe more credit than they deserve, you know, kind of saying, you know, well, there must be a strategy here. I worry with Trump that there's just not a strategy. Um, there usually isn't. But, uh, you know, hopefully better heads in, 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 in the Oval Office will prevail. And Ryan, you've been inside government, so you know that, you know, there, whether there is a strategy or not. Clearly, uh, it's a different government in the US than the one that you had experience of here. What's, what's your view? Do you think cool heads will prevail or do you think there's a level of unpredictability about the Trump administration? Well, I wouldn't go anywhere near working uh, with, with, with Trump. But I, um, uh, I was looking up some stats earlier on, on Korea, um, South, South Korea, this is. Uh, 60, they produce 64% of the world's memory chips, 40% of the world's liquid crystal displays, 17% of uh, semiconductors in the, in the world. Um, so, you know, uh, any, any strike that, or any military um, conflagration that, um, uh, that hit South Korea would be a huge problem. Uh, 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 one technology expert said if Korea is hit by a missile, all electronics production worldwide would stop. 
Now, uh, the, so the interconnectedness of the global economy, these supply chains are, are profound. 12% of Apple's uh, supplies come from uh, South Korea. So, you know, I think we should all be really concerned about this and watching Donald Trump's Twitter feed with uh, even more fear and alarm than normal. Yeah, well, there terrifying. we go. On that note, we have run out of time. Uh, I must say, however, that I feel somewhat reassured. Uh, there's a lot of optimism. Uh, there is some risk. But to go back to the point that you raised, uh, in times of uncertainty, in times of risk, it's a good time to try new things. So I think we should take that away. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking the panel. Thanks for listening to the Business of Fashion podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and subscribe today. Don't forget to visit businessoffashion.com to learn more about BOF and everything that we do.